Exits for Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. Here and welcome back to X's for Podcast, the show where we take a look at comics' marvelous mutants week after week through their many monthly titles. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Nico Action. That's N I C O A C T I O N. And I'm super excited about today's episode. As always, we're looking to expand and evolve our coverage of the mutant state of the Marvel Universe. And this week, we actually had a chance to take a look at two very different kinds of X book a solo title and a team book, as well as one of those bigger picture titles that kind of fits into our mutant scale of things. We're going to take a look at Hellions number 11, Cable number 10, and Black Knight number 2. Black Knight, of course, being a good friend of the original Captain Britain, Brian Braddock. Now, something comes up in the conversation between Josh, Drew, and Evelyn while discussing Hellions, and one of the things they talk about is sort of the lack of canon and how little she was represented. And I wanted to talk for just a moment about who this character was and essentially why she was. Of course, many fans know that Psylocke, as a character, went through the Siege Perilous, along with a number of the other X-Men, and when she came out on the other side of it, she was now amazing and a ninja, and there was some amount of aesthetic redesign, which, of course, crossed racial lines, and suddenly Psylocke was an Asian woman, which was a huge departure from her creation under Chris Claremont, and then her continued work under so many other writers. Eventually, as time would go on, Fabian Nicieza and Andy Kubert in February of 1993, so I guess two and a half, three years after Psylocke showed up and was no longer British, but rather an Asian woman, and established the revanche narrative. Now, what many fans might not realize is that in her original run, revanche never appeared before the fusion, and her total number of appearances before ultimately succumbing to the legacy virus was less than 20. It's really shocking. She appeared in X-Men 17, 18, 20 through 26, as well as annual number two. She would go on to appear in a number of the other issues of the Blood Ties crossover, such as Uncanny X-Men 307 and Avengers 369, before making one last run in Uncanny 308, X-Men 27, 28, 31, and 32. It would be 15 years before Revanche would resurface in any significant way in the pages of Uncanny X-Men 508 by Matt Fraction with art by Greg Land in the pages of Sisterhood, and from there we have been treated to a really complicated narrative about the journey back to Kanan, especially in the pages of Hunt for Wolverine, Mystery, and Madripoor, which really set the stage for what would later happen in Rosencanny, and later Excalibur, and X-Force, Hellions, the rest is famed, but it really was Fabian Nicieza, Matt Fraction, and then later Jim Zub in the pages of Hunt for Wolverine, Mystery, and Madripoor number four, making it possible for Matt Rosenberg and Salvador La Roca to bring the character back in a big way in Uncanny X-Men number 16 from June 2019. Now, enough about the past. Let's focus on the present with a brand new issue of Hellions by Zeb Wells featuring Josh, Drew, and Evelyn on the discussion. We hope you guys like it. Hey guys, welcome back. This week on X's for Podcast, we're talking about Hellions issue 11. Written by Zeb Wells with art by Steven Segovia, colors by David Curiel, letters by friend of the show VCs Ariana Mar. This issue sees the conclusion of the sinister arc.
arcade mastermind triple double super cross with the hellions trapped in the middle and it brings up some big questions for the future of this team with me today is evelyn evelyn say hi and tell us where we can find you hi i'm evelyn the comic canary you can find me on instagram at twitter at comic underscore canary we also have with us drew hey i'm drew you can find me on twitter and instagram at drewcifer3 that's at d-r-e-w-s-i-p-h-e-r-3 and with us we also have josh I'm Josh Wheel, and as always, you can find me at Asleep at the Wheel, W-E-I-L on Twitter, and at asleepatthewheel.com. And for the next two years as the Progressive Democrat running for U.S. Senate in Florida, you can find me across social media at Wheel, the number four U.S. Senate. So Hellions is a very interesting title. And, you know, we had some green room talk, too, where really focusing on Sinister. And, you know, the name says it all. Like, Sinister is showing himself to be sinister like we know he's sinister it's his fucking name but somehow despite the fact that Hoxpox made it plain and clear that sinister and his cloning and his chimeras were going to be the downfall of mutant kind we have just had so much fun with this sassy bitch that we've kind of forgotten that he might be the biggest threat on the island I know Drew had some thoughts on that. So as we get started on this issue, Drew, Sinister. This whole series, Sinister's the comic relief and he's the funny guy. You know, we all kind of like love him, but, you know, are keeping our eye on him. But this issue really shows that like he is not to be fucked with and that even behind all that comic relief we still have that sinister who like we always know so kieran gillen kind of changed his um his personality a little bit making him like comedic and we've obviously stuck with that kind of um thing but don't like we can't forget that he's still that evil person we know from the 80s and all that sinister i think was always when you go back and read 90 sinister the the kind of like sassiness subtle queer coded was always there but it was not it was kind of more there on reread like it was very kind of underneath he was really poorly defined we've talked about it on this show that there are multiple x-men writers who have uh from the past who have flat out acknowledged and said in public like i've written issues with sinister and i can't tell you what his powers are um (laughs) there's also ones who've said that about apocalypse too (laughs) but gillen totally just embraced it gillen said here's this kind of thing that has been this like soft little subtle under thread of Sinister's character and we're gonna blow it up and make it like Drew Paul Drew Paul Drew Paul <laughs> drag race in your face sassiness um you know who and you know who, who reminds me of fantastic. is like Jafar from Aladdin that's like the huh. vibes I get from him oh he's got okay. some of that yeah, for sure. And like that, there's like that little like, you know, like, like, because I remember I never thought him as like a queer coded character. And then literally the first time he appeared in Hawks Pox, I was like, is he gay? <laughs> Just like the way he talks and stuff. I was like, I think he's gay. <laughs> Oh, he's sassy as Yeah, that's what I mean. (laughs) I've always kind of saw that subtlety. So another big thing with this issue, um, 
for me is how much this has become, this is the sinister title, but really it's become the Conan title as well. Yeah. And how big a role she's playing in the Krakoan era, which I don't think I said, despite the fact that we started with her having her own series, it was a poorly received, unmemorable six issues of Fallen Angels. So much so that I was having a conversation with someone the other day and I had completely forgotten that Kid Cable was one of the three main characters in that series. Um, he was. <laughs> but I really felt that this was going to be like the Havoc book, I think, going into it. And, you know, with Conan as the third lead. And really, I would say she's 1A, 1B with Sinister on this um, in terms of the series. She has the major romantic story arc. She is our point of view character. She's our emotional center of it. Havoc, if anything, is a B or a C comic relief character for the most part. Um, and it's not just that she's taken over this story, but she's she's gotten more screen time in the last three issues of Excalibur than Gambit has in two years. Um, she's, <laughs> she's playing a major role and really seeing her character developed and defined across multiple titles here um, as she's gone from Fallen Angels to Hellions to Excalibur now. What do we think of the trajectory of Quan and, and what we're getting from her in this book? And and where do you see her going across line in the future? So I'm here for it. I've been saying for ages, like, justice for Quanin. Like, she, like, the amount of shit she has gone through is absolutely insane, including this issue. <laughs> and I think she does deserve to be a role rather than B-roll right now. Like, she deserves top billing at this point. She's an incredible character. And I agree that it really sounded like it was going to be a Havoc storyline, especially from that like first issue, which I wasn't going to be totally mad about. I am a big Havoc fan, but seeing her come into the forefront in both this as well as like really developing her through Excalibur, I've been really enjoying. And while I'm not sure where it's going to go, I would like to see it continue and see her become this amazing character that is well known that she deserves to be. Like they're really like trying to completely separate Betsy and, and Conan from each other. And I know we like I've mentioned this a couple of times. We also don't know much about Conan because Aside from the legacy virus around issue yeah, twenty four of the X-Men series that launched in ninety one. So we're talking ninety three until she came back in Rose and Canny in twenty eighteen. So twenty five years. Yeah. She was off the board for 25 years. And now, so now to see her in like the full light, you know what I mean? Like she's she's getting her moment of time that she like truly deserves. And um, another thing too is we talk a lot about like minor characters. Like we want to see more minor characters being risen up in this era because we've seen, you know, the rogues, the genes, the cyclopses, the colossuses. We've seen them forever. Let's get those new characters that like we know a little bit about. Um, let's, let's build them more. And I think like she's really one of those characters in this era. And it- and it's hard. Like, this is probably the most difficult character to uniquely establish as well because she's wearing the body and looks like a different character that we had for nearly 30 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, she's looking like a character that has so 
much history that we know because of the really awkward, unfortunate way they were joined and left joined and messed up for so long. Like, so now, you know, we have to get used to something different from this thing that still visually elicits years of history. Um, but I, I love the start of this issue. I love old lady Kanan um, killing the younger, like, clone version of herself that comes to assassinate her and building just a mountain fortress of their corpses uh, every day for 50 years. Just bad bitch 101. Oh, for sure. Uh, and, you know, she called out to Grey Crow and Grey Crow came to her. Um, and then we get... But I think is probably one of the funniest scenes in the book with Havoc, right? So Havoc finds his way there and, you know, he's he's barely dressed. He's in his himbo tatters from Inferno with a leash around his neck. And he's just like, holy shit, where did you guys come from? Madeline just took off, so I, I don't really know where to go. She thinks she's punishing me by leaving, but 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 what do I care? I'm not scared of being alone. And Grey Crow just completely side eyes him, like sure. Buddy. <laughs> okay, can we just take a second to appreciate? I know we, I know it was established in the last chapter, and it was talked about, but I just I need to reiterate that he has this. It's literally bondage humiliation kink with him. Like it's straight up bondage humiliation with and, being some. But it's not. His nightmare. Mastermind's giving him what he thinks is a nightmare. Yeah. And he fucking loves it. He's just embarrassed to admit it. Yes. Like, I'm just, I'm here for it. It's like, that is just, that is mwah, chef's kiss. It just, it was beautiful. Because you know Havoc, like, actually kind of liked it. That's why he was upset that Madeline left. Because he was like, he was into it. <laughs> Yes. No, absolutely. And I think I think Rosenberg did a fantastic job of really redesigning Havoc. I think the Havoc that we're seeing here and that, that we're getting in this era owes a lot to that last year and a half before Hox Pox, starting with um, Rosenberg taking over Astonishing X-Men, where he did the Havoc Losers series, and he was only given like five, six issues of it before they put him on Uncanny for Dissembled. But where it was basically Havoc's like, things aren't going well. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to start an X-Team. I'm a leader, and I need to be a leader. And everyone else is like, you're not allowed to use the X-Men name. No, you're going to fuck something up. No, no. Where you cease and desist. Kitty Pride writes him a cease and desist letter. You're not allowed to call yourself X-Men in public. Like, you can have a little team but like no no baby no like and he's like he's working out of like a grungy apartment with like a depressed drunk colossus and dazzlers kind of shows up like i thought we were going to be x-men again like what the fuck why are you guys eating like day old pizza off the floor like what the fuck is wrong with y'all and that really kind of turned like okay so havoc is major younger brother syndrome right like havoc yeah. is kind of a perpetual fuck up and you know and, and we saw him kind of do good he got a big redeeming moment in the last issue of rosen canning um but he's he's fuck up younger brother here and and they're really building building into that um nicely that like this is this is him not the back and forth that we got 
lot from, you know, people like Peter David and Howard Mackey and Rick Remender with the like, no, look, like he's a big blonde, you know, hero. Like, no, he's a natural leader and he's a representative of mutants. And then we'd get back to an X-Men writer who kind of gets it. It's like, nah, he's gonna fuck someone. <laughs> and his history has just been blown up so many times. And some of that is just the multiple character assassination attempts of Polaris. Like, he doesn't have a lot of good relationships. And, you know, historically, he like... Gr- he has this group, though. That's, like, his yeah. mm-hmm. really his only... He does. Um, But, like, if we go to core, if we go to Claremont era Havoc, right? He was kind of lost. Like, when Claremont brings him in, he's, you know, doing his, like, archaeological stuff. And then he goes to find the X-Men. And he's, he's kind of, like, lost in a mess before he becomes part of the Aussie. And then even during, like, man, like, that Inferno stuff is not good character stuff. Like, he is, like... <laughs> It is like watching some of those awkward Steve Carell moments on The Office, like kind of like cringe ooh, like as he's like slowly coming around to deciding that he's going to fuck his brother's ex-wife. Um, like is not good in Inferno. Um, like he's not like a big, strong hero. Like, and, and I mean, and that's the Claremont archetype. You know, they went a different way in the 90s. You know, they tried just kind of like being like, no, he's going to be Cyclops 2.0 for you know, the Peter David OG X Factor. But it's like, that's not the foundation of this character. Um, the foundation of this character is, you know, uh, emotionally stunted little brother fuck up. And, and not only that, we've, gets that. we've seen the, the big brother with Cyclops. Like, you know what I mean? We've seen the good hero. We don't need another one. Mm-hmm. You know, like, let's give like a different character uh, view, you know, like, like make him different than his brother. Yeah. And some of that goes to, too, the fact that you're like people who don't totally get Cyclops forget that he's a dumbass. I've always read him as being a little like or thought of him as being a little OCD um, in terms of like his leadership. We have to follow the rules. No, these are the rules, guys. Like we have to know, like this is the thing we have to do. Um, and some people definitely didn't get that. It's part of what really turned me off about Matt Fraction's run. I love Matt Fraction so much and I love X-Men so much. But for some reason, I do not love Matt Fraction X-Men. And, you know, I think part of it was because, you know, he thought that he would just make Cyclops like kind of like sexy middle-aged like cool dude like he didn't get that the only cool he made him cool enough to be fucking emma frost as opposed to the fact that the only cool thing about him is that he's fucking emma frost like like totally missing the distinction there on how that works for him like he's not a cool character and he is a a classic dumbass and i love going back to you know when he found out that corsair was his dad like he fishes him out of the lake behind the x-mansion and he starts screaming at him like he finds the locket and he's like what is this why do you have a picture of my mom and pictures of me and alex as babies where did you get these old man old enough to be my father why do you have this See, I always as being this dumbass but also like having these like a authority issues but in the way that it's like he needs approval from authority issues he craves approval from xavier and from his father he has daddy issues yeah he has major daddy issues is what i've always read him as and same thing with havoc where havoc having that classic younger brother syndrome but also having those also daddy issues where he's like he just he does not have anything he does like while cyclops has probably too many father figures like havoc really does 
doesn't have many father figures at all and he desperately wants one kind of thing. Yeah. So there's the summer's dynamic. Like we could just forever. Do all day. Uh, That's I like a whole other podcast. So we can have a podcast just dedicated to the summer's family. I love their dumbasses so much. <laughs> Same. Uh, you know, we get a great scene where Havoc tries to take the lead and Graco tells him to shut up. Um, and we, we build our story where ultimately, you know, we get into the double, triple, quadruple crosses of Arcade and Mastermind, Sinister, and everything that's going on, right? We see them kind of like breaking each other free, and we find out that even though, you know, Arcade manipulated Mastermind to double trick Sinister to capture him to use in this, it was Sinister had plotted it all along and manipulated Mastermind to manipulate Arcade to manipulate him to go back and manipulate Sinister to bring them in to manipulate the Hellions so that way, you know, in the end, Sinister will have been, you know, supposedly made to build a clone farm against his will that Arcade will use to make all sorts of evil, crazy fucking clones. But really, that's what Sinister wanted all along because we said this last time, like with the twisting his arm, like you can't twist Sinister's arm to make you an evil clone farm. There is nothing Sinister loves more than making an evil clone farm. He'll do it for fucking free. Yeah. yeah. And they even say that in the issue. It's just like, mm, that was too easy. I'm still going to pull your teeth out. And it's like, okay. <laughs> But that's just, that's Arcade Master. He's just, he's a sadistic dumbass. And then the entire, the entire issue, which I thought was genius, is uh, Zeb Wells writes uh, Sinister with, like, he can't pronounce his, his THs or his S's. The entire, issue, down. the entire issue. And just, like, the way he must have, like, had to, like, say everything in order to write everything. Because he writes it out as if it's how it's supposed to be pronounced without your T. So you need witnesses, not yeah. the most reliable. But with Mastermind's help, witnesses still that the Hellions will return boasting of the liberation of their tortured leader from Arcade. I will be beyond suspicion. <laughs> and it's written exactly like that with basically like autofill, find, replace, changing every S to an SH. Yeah. And Conan uh, is not happy. I'm honestly just waiting for her to like just, if not kill Sinister, at least give him the beating of a lifetime. Just being like, you motherfucker, you keep fucking with us well i'm gonna fuck with you now and i'm just i'm waiting for her to just snap and just kill him or something but i feel like she's just smart enough where she's like i need to figure out what he's up to first and then i'll kill him <laughs> i'm surprised that with all of the like sinister gets killed so many times because he's a system and has you know consciousness sharing across mm -hmm. all of his bodies and stuff i'm surprised that she's not just killing him on a weekly basis right <laughs> that like she's not just killing one of him and then another one walks out from behind the curtain on a regular basis like as she gets fed up with his shit yeah um yeah. but there's definitely something here and we do you know be remiss if we didn't mention you know that she allowed them to kind of mastermind manipulate the minds of the rest of the hellions into thinking that they all had a big victory against our mm -hmm. but now we see that you know like there's gonna be a big con and sinister stand coming up and Part of our talk in the green room, now I was mentioning that Hellions, this issue, while I enjoyed it, gave me more kind of exciting meta thoughts about the series and, you know, the X line as a whole than it did like love within the pages. And it felt to me like a series wrapping up. You know, Marauders this week felt like a series wrapping up. We know Cable is a series wrapping up. X-Men is relaunching post Hellfire Gala. And I'm wondering if we could see even more changes across titles. It feels to me 
me like the titles with legacy names, Excalibur, X-Force, X-Factor, that they represent permanent roles in the Krakoan era, right? They are permanent establishments that need to be part of the resurrection mm-hmm. protocols, the the Black Ops, the um, uh, Otherworld and, and you know, the Magical Gates and, and especially with Otherworld as the number one threat to, to mutants now established. These are need to be permanent fixtures of this era. But things like Hellions, Marauders, Fallen Angels, these are stories that could be side stories. These are dalliances. These can come and go and end. And, you know, Way of X feels this way too. Sword kind of feels this way too. And I'm wondering if we could be seeing a majority of the titles in the Krakoan era only existing to really tell stories over, say, 12 to 20 issues, you know, then rolling over and cycling into the next batch. Like, are things like Marauders, Hellions, and Cable shooting their shot, telling their story, and then turning into, you know, the next leg of the world building with Sword, Way of X, and X. X-Force and X-Factor really are these permanent situations. And the other thing about them is that they can change their team over. Technically, Excalibur can too, with the exception of um, Betsy. Excalibur can change itself over too. Um, Like, it can change the whole rest of its roster except for Betsy, really, on Excalibur. X-Force and X-Factor. X-Factor is always going to have to have the five peripherally, but you can change that entire investigation team. The role that they play is permanent. These other ones that are more team dependent, things like the Hellions and such, really feel like they can come and go. Like Way of X is about, you know, if it's about building the religion thing, like this could be a double trade 12 issue maxi series. It doesn't need to go on forever. Um, And yeah, like we know that characters are moving around. We see Rogue and Polaris moving into the major X-Men team. We know that Conan is showing up in a lot more places and there's been a lot of great Teeny's been using her grade over in one of them. Um, We've already seen Laura switch across titles from Fallen Angels to X-Men. Cable went from Fallen Angels to his book. Conan went from Fallen Angels to here. Like as characters kind of shuffle in the world, is there permanently a role for Hellions? Do you think that Hellions is a book? I feel Marauders is the one that really could exist more permanently. I could also easily see Marauders ending at the Hellfire Gala. Do you think that there's a permanent role five to ten years of telling Hellion stories? I would like to so purely because I again I really like these characters. I really like the dynamics that they're telling. And I feel like Hellions could be an interesting one where it could be even a rotating cast of misfits, um, outliers, side characters that, like we've said multiple times on not just this episode, but throughout the podcast of having those side characters like have a chance to tell their stories more. And I feel like Hellions has a chance to do that. So, you know, where I want to see Wild Child go is I want to see Wild Child uh, roll in for a couple issues with X Factor and dealing with the fact that um, Aurora, his ex-girlfriend, is with uh, Daken now. Hmm. When did I also happen? would love to see as the uh, Conan and Grey Crow continues to evolve, I would oh, love yes. to see them on X-Force. I think they would be fantastic as they kind of come out of timeout, as like they get let out of Sinister's penalty box, um, actually playing a role on that team. I think they would be... Because they're the adults here right now. Like, yeah. they're the adults everyone else is the children they should be the first ones who like graduate off of the hellions and don't have to do this shit anymore and they would be a great fit on x-force kind of bringing story in with them as well yeah 
I just I dug this issue. I mean, I liked the um the it felt like a departure from what the other Hellion stories have been or the issues have been, where it was definitely a lot more serious. Um, there was a lot more consequences. It was definitely a lot, but I felt that it worked as as, as this issue. I felt that this like more serious tone definitely worked where we got we got some of that comedic relief towards the end but I felt like Hellions for a long time was really kind of building up to being a little bit more serious than like the comedy that we've had before yeah I mean one of the things that we've have to remember too going back to the beginning of the series is that this is built around sinister and dealing with all of his like shady dealings like the 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 team and the comedy and all the bullshit like is there to make it entertaining but the main purpose of this is that you know in Hoxpox we learned that you know Sinister and his you know uh, clone farms are the biggest threat to mutants to, to mutant stability in Krakoa and that he still has clone farms in places like Nebraska and his other places that he's still building secret clone farms and now he's even sneaking other ones in and letting and having Arcade run them for him as well like he's he's back on his bullshit and you know that needs to be that is a serious threat line wide you know while as much fun as it can be you know watching these characters all fuck with each other and shoot uh miguel it's it's a big threat brewing in the background here you know and you know who we're really missing from this um this issue is empath um nanny and orphan maker we didn't really see them that much in this issue i think that's why it kind of had much more of a serious tone as well i don't know if they were removed to help keep a serious tone or if it just maintained a more serious tone because it was focusing on the more serious characters. But yeah, this one was missing a lot of those who were generally more comic relief. Mm -hmm. All right, guys, Nico here again, and I love this next segment. Now, I know I say I love all the segments because I do love all the segments, but Arturo, uh, that's Mr. Toybox to those of you out in the Twitterverse, has been pushing this amazing theory about Cable and Strife and sort of the intersection of the two identities. Now, I don't want to blow it. You guys can check out this next clip where he talks about it a little bit, and whether or not that is what the storyline shapes up to be, I know I'm excited to see where things ultimately may go. Check out this next segment featuring Arturo, Blake and Maddie as they examine the state of Cable as the series winds down toward its inevitable gala-esque conclusion. And welcome back to X's for Podcast. I'm Arturo. Uh, You can find me at Mr. Toybox. And I'm your friendly neighborhood ex-nerd Blake. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Blake's Buzz. And for all your indie comic needs, you can check out my blog at Blake'sBuzz.com. And I am Maddie. And as always, you can find me over on Instagram at the Basely Covetous Man and over on Twitter at Basely Covetous. And today we are tackling Cable Number Ten, written by Jerry Dugan, with art by the incomparable Phil Noto, letters by VCs Joe Sabino. Kid Cable has. Has a clone problem and his name is Strife. After Emma caught Cable in the act of trying to steal Cerebro from Xavier, she convinces him to get help from his father. But first, Cyclops and Cable have to go to London to stop a bar fight between the Iraqi. It gets weird. Let's get into it. It does get weird. You could, <laughs> you, there's, you definitely had a vibe there too. Like <laughs> they get into a bar fight. Uh. 
it's just you know guys we were saying this in the green room like there's this is issue number 10 of 12 we know that the sunset is on the horizon um and we've got limited time here with cable and it's a very strange beat that they go into the bar fight i guess we'll get to it we'll we'll take this piece by piece but it's it's a it was a weird choice and it is littered with weird choices uh but the the comic opens up and we see cable you know doing his stealthy thing he's got night vision goggles he looks like he's up to no good he has a a canister of you know i'm guessing it's like knockout gas and apparently he's trying to steal the cerebro helmet from xavier Amakot catches him red-handed and stops him in his tracks, which is probably for the best. Although, I think that might have been a much more interesting comic, seeing what would have happened if uh, if Cable did get Cerebro and, and carried on. She catches him, and he comes clean, finally, about strife. What, what what was your take on this uh, on this opening act? It was a strong departure from the last few issues of Cable for me. It seemed like you know more more appropriate to uh, more more akin rather to the opening of I believe it was either eight or nine. It was the the solo Cable and Domino story in Tokyo. It just picked up on big action with recognizable characters, and from there it seemed to backpedal a little bit as far as like the the focus of story and the intensity of story. I mean Cable went from trying to knock out Professor X to anything after that, you know, is is pretty much a step down off that ledge. But I, I definitely, if nothing else, I, knowing that we have two issues left, knowing we have less than a month left with this iteration of Cable, I went into it with no expectations and something was delivered. <laughs> something indeed. <laughs> yeah, so I had like a time travel night planned last night. So I watched Tenet and I was like, I'm going to watch Tenet and then I'm going to get caught up in cable and I'm just going to be like overwhelmed with time travel shenanigans. And this is going to be like a, a fun, you know, nerdy ass Saturday night. And I dug Tenet and then I read, I got, I read, uh, what was it? Uh, seven, eight, nine, and 10. I read last night and I just was like, not a lot is happening. And as we've said, this, this issue, this series has a termination date, you know? and Dugan's moving on to X-Men and Cable's gonna be in S.W.O.R.D. probably. I mean, we don't really know, but I mean, this series is gonna is now a maxi-series and it's gonna end at 12 and we don't have a lot of time to, you know, linger. And that's what this issue is heavy on, is lingering, which is a bummer because it started out good. Uh, he gets caught by Emma. Uh, Emma's like, what's your deal? And she's like, show me. And I thought that's, that interaction with him was really good. And when she sees like the image of Strife and, and the stuff that you know young cable knows and she pulls out her flask and takes a drink and i was like yeah all right like we're gonna yeah. get some shit and we but it just it tapered off it was a, it was uh the the strength of the intro compared to the following pages we got was was very lackluster and that's hard for me to say because i am a champion of gary dugan and like or I said his name wrong i like this guy that i don't even know his name i really like <laughs> uncle jerry <laughs> yeah I, I consider him uncle jerry which you know i, I I, I love the guy. Um, I'll be honest. I gasped when I saw the strife image in, in Cable's mind. Uh, listeners, if anybody's been following, you know that I have fallen down several rabbit holes with this whole theory that Kid Cable is actually Kid Strife. And I will I will uh, posit that I 
don't think this issue necessarily disproves that, uh, but it it makes it possibly you know less likely. Um, you know, I I recently reread the extermination series and then um, Brisson's X Force that came after that, and there is one bit, there's one scene at the very end of that X Force run where there could have been a body swap, right? Like it, it something could have happened off panel, and you could defend that this has been cable this has been strife the whole time and and that's you know strife posing as cable is as vintage strife as it gets that's like strife's go-to move so i think that would have been that would make such an interesting thing for this so i've i've that this, ever since this theory has gone into my head cable has become like this comic that i really look forward to because i really want to get to the to, to the bottom of this mystery that may just be existing in my head but here we are so then getting here seeing stripe on panel like i was titillated i was so excited and and then you know i love this interaction with emma i like that apocalypse came up i like the analogy where she said well you know what is strife but a whetstone upon which to sharpen yourself and i i thought this was like a great setup and Emma, you know, hopefully points Cable towards his dad, one of the great captains of Krakoa. And uh, and then, you know, we cut to the moon and we see Cyclops. This was a this was a great scene. Cyclops is getting fitted for the Hellfire Gala. Let's talk about the Hellfire Gala. I know everybody's excited about that. It's uh, my favorite thing on my Twitter feed are all the Hellfire looks that are coming out of the X office and probably even more so all the incredible fan art um, that's out there and the, the Hellfire Gala personas and, and all this cool, cool art that's coming out. So I loved seeing Jumbo Carnation there. Uh, I like that they, they were talking a little bit about Cyclops' outfit. Um, that was a nice little beat. But then things take a, a strange turn when Cyclops and Cable go through a gate to go to London. In, inarguably have a very limited experience with, you know, reading full line-wide titles week to week. And so in that way, you know, even when I did dabble in my in my weekly pull lists and, and collecting, there wasn't a lot of crossover. I'd read a little bit of Uncanny X-Men and then a little bit of Spider-Man for some reason. You know, there wasn't a lot of, you know, uh, homogenization and synergy between the titles that I was reading. And so it's exciting to see in, in Cable, you know, a, a book that's ending no less that we're every title almost you know in in recent weeks is making passing mention of the gala or making direct mention of the gala and it it does feel like there is like a a anticipation building it also kind of feels like there's something that everybody knows that we don't know that we're not being told about you know when cyclops says to jumbo in this issue you know i want to feel test the visor and he's like you know afraid it's not you know you don't want to make splash and he's like that's not the fireworks displayed one that um i feel like there is something that it, this is building towards of course there's something that the hellfire gala is building towards and if nothing else you know i'm i'm completely without a guess as to what it is but i'm i'm so over the moon to see it ramped up within the pages of these titles yeah. like that's really cool it, it doesn't feel like it's just the next event it right. feels organically like what is next on the social calendar for krakoa and that's huge in the age of of mutant oneness is that it feels 
feels like there is specific mutant agenda and mutant social agenda. I, I like that we're going to a, a big crossover event and it's not about the end of the world or the end of the timeline or the genocide of the mutants or, you know, etc. It's it's going to be a party. And, uh, and I know that that's, I guess, not everybody's cup of tea. There's certainly some people online that are, you know, mad about it. I doubt many of them listen to our show. I think we're in the... <laughs> I think we're the sweet spot of people that are hyped for this uh, event and these looks. So I actually have a theory, uh, and and like going back uh, to what we just talked about when when Cyclops mentions like, oh, those aren't the fireworks we want, but he also wants to field test the visor and make sure, like you know, you you know what you, you field test a weapon, okay? Like it's that's what you field test. I have a, a suspicion that this uh, this gala is is gonna be like big crazy action because sword we thought sword was going to be uh x or the swords we, th- we thought that event was going to be like mortal Kombat esque and like people were going to and people did die but i mean like we thought it was going to be like really big action big set pieces lots of great fighting um and you know we got like a weird dinner party with um and, and it, i enjoyed it but it just wasn't what we thought it was so i kind of wonder if they're gonna like give us this gala where we're like this is the x-men award show and like like everybody's dressing up all beautiful and looking like super awesome. And then like Nimrod shows up, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like I just, I feel like something crazy is going to happen. And even if I'm wrong, I'm here for it. Like I'm really excited for it. I pre-ordered that, that 12 cover uh, connecting variant series that they're doing like the, the red carpet walkway, but it's green. Awesome. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm really stoked about it, but so I'm, I'm hyped about it too. And I like that we're seeing mentions of it in the books. Uh, it's cool. And it does, it does, feel forced uh and and these books are supposed to connect you know that was the original premise right like we all thought that we had to buy all these books because they were they were going to piggyback off each other and it was going to be this huge x story and they keep adding these x books and, and things do cross over here and there but not not like we thought they were gonna um so i mean this is kind of like back to like right post post hawksbox man like we're getting this story that's involving all the books and all the characters and this is what we all kind of signed up for and we're finally getting getting that and i think it's going to be bigger than we think it is and there's gonna i think there's gonna be like bigger action bigger repercussions it's not just gonna be these outfits in the art i think i think they're like throwing us uh i think it's a ruse kind of for like some some hardcore shit is about to go down but that's just i mean like i said if i'm wrong i'm here for the x-men award show i'm here for the variants and the looks and the art uh but it's i am excited for it like i'm i'm super excited yeah i mean it's interesting that you say um you know going back to like when everything was felt a little more connected there were less books coming out and and I think the the creators were in the business at that point of building Krakoa and kind of establishing this new this new status quo um and it's just grown so expansively in, in the last year and we keep getting new books like way of X just started awesome book um it's interesting to watch how the X office is growing and changing and one of those changes that's on the horizon is the the end of cables as we've mentioned we we get a we get a reminder of the hellfire gala so so up until now this issue is succeeding okay like it, it's uh it, the intro pulled us in uh it is reminding us of the event it's reminding readers to pre-order the variants you want and get ready for all these issues you're gonna have to buy just a little reminder uh so you know as it does the, those things successfully and now we get to this bar fight and, and here this we bar go. fight is 
is troubling. I think what was supposed to happen here is uh was some kind of father and son moment. Um you know where where Cable goes to Scott and Scott gives him like fatherly advice like like Emma told him to and when he interacts with the great champion of Krakoa that is not what we get. Uh we get a, a lackluster action scene. Um that's at least pretty, you know, the art like the art is great. The, the art never lets you down. Uh but this interaction and this whole scene, uh, which is a bigger part of the issue, higher page counts than other areas we've been so far, it just didn't really accomplish much. And it, in a series where we have this issue and two more left, every panel matters. Well, it did accomplish one thing. It pissed me off. <laughs> I'll tell you what, because... So you turn the page, you leave, you leave, you know, the the house on the moon, and then bam, we're now in this scene in London. There's cops everywhere. You know, an area looks like it's cordoned off. And it's just, it's the kind of thing, like, in the context of 2021, you see a whole bunch of cops, and it feels like a loaded thing. And what happens here is the mutants are here to play nice. Cable throws a little, you know, telepath uh, whammy on the on the cops and they think that cable and cyclops are supposed to be there they go into the bar to to see what's going on and we find two i I guess these are the second and third new iraqis that we have seen since echoes x of swords their names are castor and pollux uh which i would like to also throw out there that that makes absolutely no sense because those are that's like from greek roman mythology and these are the iraqis that would have predated that so why the hell are they named Castor and Pollux, but I digress. We've seen Iska on page since X of Swords. We recently met Cora of the Burning Heart in the Pages of Sword. Awesome seeming character, like very cool uh, debut. And now we have Castor and Pollux, and they're just fucking shit up for literally no reason other than being bored. And I don't get what this is supposed to be doing. I understand the the I understand the context of Arako is a more warlike place so you know our mutant cousins from Morocco might be more aggressive and uh and not want to play nice with everybody but i think it's it's just a little short-sighted to just frame the Iraqans as as just like the aggressive bad mutants and that's what it feels like that, that if there was a purpose to this fight i think that's what it was and i don't think that's great <laughs> How did you feel about it, Maddie? The whole situation between the involvement of the, the local authorities and the actual combative nature of Krakoans versus the Iraqis out of nowhere just created this this weird, uncomfortable social dynamic that I wasn't really fond of. Um, it was very, like, police sympathetic and Iraqi, you know, not... And in that way, I think it, it it was just a weird and uncomfortable light to shine on both sides. But I want to jump back to your mention of Castor and Pollux making absolutely no sense beyond the Greco-Roman um, interpretation you know, directly from Castor and Pollux are the twins associated with the astrological sign Gemini. There would not be the same sky or set of celestial bodies in other worlds. They would not be looking at the same astronomical, you know, structures and and so that couldn't come from anywhere but Earth. So they must have come here and just been like, 
I don't know, you want to just like take names and go fuck shit up? Cool. All right, fine. <laughs> and I can live with that. I can live with it. It's okay. But what it says to me is, and this is not a swipe at Jerry Dugan at all, because I truly, genuinely love the way that he matches Cadence on every character that he writes. And no matter what he does, puts together, it is engaging story front and back. I will say the lack of forethought that went into the creation of these characters tells me it is just a footnote to say the Iraqis are still around. Don't forget about Iraq before the gala. And if not by the gala, maybe a little after the gala. But just like, don't forget because a lot's going on. But, we'll never see it again. But like, literally, like if this had been, you know, a couple of mutants, some D-list mutants that, you know, didn't accept the the promise of Krakoa, they're, you know, mutant separatists, they want to do their own thing. And, and this is a case of mutants policing mutants like that i would have totally been okay with but making them a rockins or a rocky just it adds this whole layer to it that i wasn't really into it it just it just felt weird um and 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 it feels like if this is going to be like the way the krakoans treat the iraqi then you know maybe i'm supposed to feel uneasy about this right maybe this is again another crack in the foundation that is being you know laid there deliberately and will pay off in in a future story and and it'll be you know just a a developing civil war i guess between the mutants which i don't think that's you know necessarily what i want but that might be where we land what did you think blake ah if there's some way that this is going to pay off later i would be uh i would be fucking shocked (laughs) right (laughs) it's like i you know what this feel it feels it feels rushed it feels like filler it feels like not how this series started this yeah. series started so strong this awesome idea of the, of this like this um kind of detect mutant detective case of cable taking this on his own shoulders of being so hesitant to ask for help and realizing that he needs to and that he has this support community and that he has these people that care about him and want to help him that's a really awesome arc and all the while they're hunting down this this mutant cult or this mutant hating cult uh that are stealing mutant babies and then we find out that they're giving these babies to strife and we want to know why that is so impossibly epic and so well done and that's why it breaks my fucking heart that these last few issues are not giving us what we want and and what we need to finish this story um and 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 if this issue felt rushed that means that we are going to run into danger of the next two issues also feeling rushed and this really awesome story that that dugan has come up with may not get the the page count that it deserves that's that's a fear in me right now uh for whatever reason why they they're you know i get that they they're going to drop these series and, and make new ones and pick them up and stuff um and creative teams are changing and there's reasons behind all this but this was a really awesome story and premise and even it, i just don't know what they're think i don't know what the editors are thinking um again i am just a podcaster and a comic book reviewer uh so i mean like i'm not a creator and i know it's it's easy to talk about and harder to do right so like i don't want to like judge people and like throw the hammer down
down, but I mean, this series was really special the way it started, and this second half of it is suffering. And that's well, a I, I want to throw the hammer down on on one thing because if the bar fight wasn't great, I'll say the the resolution of the bar fight was absolutely horrible because two things happen: one, Cyclops blasts Caster, knocks her unconscious, and then we get a panel where the humans, the people that are there, the the bystanders are clapping behind the cops it's just such a weird visual moment like to take a panel to like show this and oh yes well well served well served what the fuck and we've even talked about how and i mean we have a whole globe of places where this fight if it had to happen where it could have happened the fact that it's in london like I, it made me think right away of Excalibur and how you know they're basically portraying that in London people aren't happy with the fact that their Captain Britain is also a mutant. So I get that there's like some tension there and you could like kind of do something with it, but that's not at all what you see here. You don't see any of the humans being like they're all filthy mutants or whatever. Like you see them clapping. It, it just it, it feels like cop propaganda in a way that I just it just doesn't make sense. And then even worse, what happens with the other, you know, quote-unquote twin with Pollux, Cable literally hands her unconscious over to the cops. And, you know, even if, like, they had to come here and police their own and whatever, it feels like they should take them back to Krakoa to deal with them in Krakoa. Leaving them here, like, what? And I don't even know if we'll ever see these mutants again or if we're just left to imagine that they're sitting in jail waiting for, you know, for a court date. I really am trying to, in looking back at this book and looking back at the issues that came before it and looking at its incredibly well, you know, mounted start, I and understanding that it's ending sooner than anticipated. I'm doing my best to look at it and strip it for its parts and ask how would this have read if, because by the current trajectory, I would assume this could have sustained a solid 20 issues before the quality took a dive. We're ending at 12. We're losing eight issues and we're shoehorning the Hellfire Gala, Hellfire Gala now in here right in the third act. So, you know, I, I wonder how this Strife storyline would have played out. I wonder how this Cult Order of X storyline would have played out. I wonder where, you know, I, I, I really am just left to wonder. And and this is, this is part of my being a part of every fandom that ever gets canceled early in my life i'm just like but it could have gone so many different ways i'm sure i'm gonna find the good about it and if nothing else it is a it is a beautifully stylized highly saturated aesthetics piece it's jerry dugan's take on tarantino style vignettes of a singular cable story and i'm cool with it i only wish that it had gotten the chance to run its proper course so that we could have seen it as intent you know it's hard to it's hard to knock it for for taking a dive in pacing or in in execution knowing that they got canceled did flat out no, canceled but, but you bring up a good point with pacing because like I, I feel like maybe at some point he was writing this like it was never going to end and and that's why we had like fun moments with Rachel and fun moments with the cuckoos and fun moments with, you know like he was doing all sorts of different stuff and let's bring Domino in for an issue or two uh, and it feels like those were just fun moments now rather than it adding up to something else because like to like let's speaking of Rachel why didn't he why didn't we close that loop why is if he's now like I'm gonna go find strife I need cerebro I need like some high level high key telepathy why not bring Rachel into it like they have such a, a rich history the two characters together like let's 
fleshed out a little bit more. And it just, it, it feels like a bunch of missed opportunities. Like the, the thing I love the most about cable, I think at this point about this whole theory or about this whole story is all the stuff that's in my head more than what's on the paper. And that's not a great place to be with a, with a book. Um, you know, we've now established like, you know, between having access to time travel technology and apparently access to clone production, like at the level of Krakoa, you know, in my head, Strife could, could have done a body swap at any point, And I'm just doing all these little head cannons and making this, you know, richer in my head than, than, than it is. Um, but it just feels like there's a lot of unresolved stuff. And if that's on the table, why are we wasting a whole issue fighting among ourselves, quote unquote, with two previously unknown Iraqs. It just I wonder if it's gonna migrate. I wonder if that's the issue here now is we're gonna get like a couple more issues of filler and this plot's gonna migrate to X-Men, which is highly aggravating if they do that. Because then they're they're just like blatantly forcing me to purchase issues that don't matter. Well and also Cyclops mentioned in this issue is not the first direct mention of cable being better suited for the X-Men. So it it yeah I, I can kind of see all roads pointing towards something of like osmosis this this going right over to the other title we haven't even touched on the uh i guess you could call it the the prologue epilogue the, 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 yeah the, yeah yeah the epilogue the old, not the prologue. old man the old man cable with the young man sword what do we yes. think about that fellas well it doesn't jive well with my strife theory i'll, I'll start with that <laughs> i felt so bad for you when i read that i was like i was like oh no <laughs> This this doesn't fit well within it doesn't fit in my fantasy. We're getting an old man cable back. The other thing about the strife theory, just to you know, plug this again, is it is a solution wherein we would have we could keep both characters right because as they they spelled out i think in the last issue you know with the resurrection protocols like when it comes to uh alternate timeline versions or alternate dimension versions like there's a prime character that is kept you don't you don't keep the alternates around but if this is strife and cable then then we could keep both of them. uh the other thing about it that i love is strife is your strife and cable are the child of madeline Pryor, also a clone like i could go on a whole tangent about clone rights and and clones in krakoa and i think that is such an interesting beat and i love that um i love that Vita's kind of playing with it a little bit with with gabby over in new mutants you're like that's it's a storm that's brewing and we're going to get there like we saw we saw zeb wells knock it out of the park right out of the gate in hellions with madeline Pryor. it's something about it's again one of those cracks in the foundation that is there deliberately you're not supposed to like it it's it 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 doesn't sit well and uh and it's hopefully going to pay off and i just kind of wish that we were doing more clone shenanigans here than bar fights but i gotta i gotta let go of this bar so yeah we see cable it looks like he's been captured by i mean this to me these the 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 antagonist that he ends up decapitating it felt more like he was in limbo right like they they definitely had that kind of like demonic vibe more than just futuristic uh but we don't know where he is we don't know what's going on but we know the old man's got a sword and uh, an axe to grind. <laughs> a sword and an axe to grind. A sword and an axe. 
and my ex. There we go. <laughs> Someone's got to do it. It'll be me. I, I dug the I dug the end of the issue. I it, it didn't quite save it for me, but I it, it left it left a better taste in my mouth than the previous pages did. You know, like it, I was like, okay, well at least you know we got something to kind of look forward to. I've I I'm with you, man. Like I want I want these clone I want the Clone Wars to happen on Krakoa. <laughs> Yeah, and I want them to call it that too, because they're Marvel and they're Disney, and they could they could we could get X Men Clone Wars or the, I, I guess the Clone Saga, but I mean like because Spider Man's about to do it again too. Uh, but this these these are elements again that have been like building. Um, that like there's so much shit, man that that we that we could deal with. Like like why is Sabretooth still in a hole? But we had to read six pages of a stupid bar fight. Like what? Right. <laughs> yeah. We could be. Dis- discussing <laughs> instead of just like page filler that like you have you have phil noto like who is a who's god's gift to comic book panels and you're you're wasting his talent away on on this scene um you know and 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 why are why are we kissing cops's ass in in x-men <laughs> yeah I like how I like how this issue is like a segue to all of our aggravations with all the X books. Yes. You know what? They, you know what's worse than this bar fight is <coughs> in a hole. And why doesn't Mystique have her wife back yet? And what the fuck's going on with Xavier? He's got a weird agenda, and I don't trust him. And like all these things because of this goddamn bar fight. <laughs> Hey everybody, Nico here one last time. And this last segment is a little off base, a little off track, but it's very us if you think about it. We're going to be taking a look at Black Knight number two by Cy Spurrier and art by Sergio Davila. Now, those of you who may remember the earliest forms of this show know that Kevo and I covered all of the Captain Britain Black Knight Otherworld saga in some of our earlier episodes. It was a lot of fun, big fans of the character. Those of you who have been listening also know that Jonah is obsessed with Elsa Bloodstone. Nathan loves all things Marvel UK and Cersei. So it just made a lot of sense to bring together these voices to talk about this title and it's exciting to see a character that we all respect and know differently come into new life under the pen of Cy Spurrier who is doing incredible things over on Way of X. I'm sure everybody checked out our incredible interview with Bob Quinn by now and ironically Bob Quinn at this point announced to be on cable which was not mentioned in the earlier segment simply because it had been recorded before that image had surfaced online. So we hope you guys enjoy myself, Kevo, Jonah, Nathan, and Blake talking about Black Knight number two. Now, if you like what you hear, you'll probably like what you see, so don't forget to give us a subscribe over on Twitter, Patreon, and YouTube at X's for Podcast. We love it if you guys dropped us a review over on Apple Podcasts and subscribe through your favorite method of receiving podcasts. And until next time, guys, enjoy this last segment, keep those mutant lights lit, those Krakoan gateways open, and we'll see ya. Hey everybody, welcome back to X's for Podcast. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Nico Action. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. This is Kevo, and you can find me at Kevo Reilly, K-E-V-O-R-E-A-L-L-Y. Hey, it's Nathan. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Desiree OA. And I'm your friendly neighborhood ex-nerd Blake. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Blake's Buzz. And for all your indie comic book needs, you can check out my blog, Blake'sBuzz.com. I guess Blake went over a cliff. Uh, I'm Jonah. You can follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at peakjonah. That's P-E-A-K. And I hope you survive this experience as well as we all do. Just like Black Knight did, and unlike those Arturian scholars, because there are about five of them in the world, and, you know, they needed to be hunted down for what they did. 
Okay, but now, like, okay, no, no, I'm gonna... <clears throat> so, you know when, like, you have road work being done on your street, and it's the most annoying thing in the world, because, like, every time you just, like, oh, man, it's 2.30, and I'm independently wealthy, so I can take a nap in the middle of the afternoon, and you lay down <laughs> on your Egyptian cotton sheets and your sateen pillows, and all of a sudden you hear, beep, 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 right? Cause I, man, I caused feedback for somebody. So, um... It's that sort of backup I need to do here. I need to run backward because as excited as I am to cover the second issue of Black Knight Curse of the Ebony Blade by Cy Spurrier and Sergio Fernandez de Vila, I need to say, hold up, because this is a much more important thing. Not only does this mark something like our... 50th Black Knight story here on Exodus for Podcast. Kevo having covered the first 47 with me. Really? It was 47? Wow. Yeah, it's a lot more stories than you think you read. (laughs) But finally, after two years of cock teasing this poor guy, Jonah, you got to read Elsa Bloodstone for this fucking show. Oh, it's beautiful. It's great. She's my everything. Uh, She's beauty. She's grace. She's not Miss Outer Space. But uh, I do wish that she would. She's win a beauty, beauty and she's grace, and she'll fuck up your dumb face. Uh, yeah, your dumb American face because she doesn't dumb have time for us. Uh, we, don't de- we don't deserve her. We do not deserve Elsa Bloodstone. No one deserves uh, her. I was so happy to see her. <laughs> she was a little more abrasive than she normally is. Also, I'm pretty sure she should know who the Black Knight is, but I'm willing to forgive all of that because she's just, you know, perfection. This was so exciting because we just talked about how much we love the Bloodstones over with Jed McKay in a recent interview and how great that whole family is. We talked about Cullen extensively in the pages of Excalibur. And now here we are getting to discuss Elsa Bloodstone, the Bloodstone, and it's in the pages of Black Knight. Now, I'll be honest, as a Captain Britain fan, Black Knight was the hardest part of those classic Black Knight stories that Kebo and I covered. I just wanted more Captain Britain, and also I find Mordred pretty funny, but I really was like, oh, get me through this. But I kind of came to love the character against my better judgment, and this series completely reinforces that. I love this book, but I love it because I think Dane is too dumb. Like, like he's so everyman that there's times where I'm like, give me the sword, please. I don't want to see you hurt yourself. Please give me the sword. How do you guys feel about the depiction of Dane as the central figure of a miniseries where he is as clueless as everyone else? I feel like it's par for the course for the character, and I barely just met the character. I feel like this is, you know, this is the right path for him. I think it just makes it that much better because he is, when he is the Black Knight, he is this very over-the-top, over-dramatic character because he kind of has to be for his sword to be at its most powerful. But here, seeing him so kind of not understanding anything at all is really funny, especially because he has to call upon a ghost, the ghost of Percival, to help him, who clearly has no time for him and just has to be a show-off ghost. I need to point out that you just made me realize that the Black Knight is here to put the edge in Edgelord. I'm pretty sure the two reigning champs of Edgelords are Cloak and Dagger, but I'll I'll allow this submission. Popularity has never been a concern of Cloak and Dagger. 
<laughs> you know, I I think his kind of aloofness and ignorance, in a sense, is what makes this series really great and so new reader friendly. Because uh, I it was not familiar with Black Knight uh, much at all um, uh, until recently. Like you know, when we he's been cast in the new movie and it's Jon Snow. But like Jon Snow, I know nothing. And anyways, um, just the fact that he's kind of dumb about it all makes me not feel bad about being dumb about it all. And I feel like I'm with the protagonist learning about the story, which is kind of like a weird meta concept uh and i also love that like he just he's so human like when he's when when percival's talking to him and like telling him the story and he's like playing on his cell phone he's like yeah uh yeah uh i'm like oh that's me i'm writing you a theme song right now and it's kind of like you know when you don't know what to do but you want to be the black knight aspire to mediocrity like blake because you're just like he makes me okay with not being better at stuff i'm just gonna stop here i'm good <laughs> Can somebody start delivering my sandwiches here? <laughs> Sorry, no. I'm mean, obviously you know I love you, so I'm just being. Serious. All all I heard was I get a theme song. I'm fucking down. And, so. <laughs> and sandwiches. Ooh, wait! I want theme, theme song and sandwiches. And sandwiches. Oh, like, that's how you win me uh, over. Check well, out our new podcast, Theme Songs and Sandwiches, where we review a sandwich while listening to our favorite theme songs. <gasps> I will oh, subscribe. I will subscribe. Cheese. Oh, I would I do that in a heartbeat and you yeah, know it. I actually would do a vlog that's just listening to theme songs, eating sandwiches. <laughs> I also really enjoyed the Dane playing on his phone thing. I thought it was funny. For me, though, jokes like that, you can pack too many of them into one issue and... I feel like this series really is teetering between doing that too much and, you know, it being okay. It's at a certain point, it's taking me out of the story by unempowering it and making it feel unimportant to me by the characters not seeming to care. Interesting. So the levity for you sort of distracts from the severity of the fact that this is an ancient magical myth character. It can at times. I just need to feel like the characters are taking the story seriously. Otherwise, I'm going to start to question why I should be taking the story seriously, you know? Yeah, that's totally fair. So for you, Nathan, how do you feel about the evolution of Dane in such a short period of time? Is Dane what's keeping you issue after issue at this point? There's a lot of elements of what Dane always was. A lot of the self-regret, a lot of the self-doubt, some of the oblivious nature. Um, But yes, I'm I'm a big Dane fan, um, but it really does contradict my image of him the image that i have in my mind of him um from the avengers gathering era from the avengers assault on mount olympus era where he was always a yeah he was kind of mopey he was kind of unsure of himself but he was a competent hero and for me to see him not taken as a serious competent hero Mm -hmm. kind of irks me a little but i know a lot of stuff has happened in between that era so now that's actually a really interesting i love how this is kind of shaken out because two people are very new to the character this is a great introduction for them but two of the people in the room have a little bit more experience with a dane who is so capable and competent that he is you know a hero amongst heroes in stories filled with their ilk. Now, I kind of sit on the, the middle here. I think that this reads like a Black Knight story by Cy Spurrier. 
for better or for worse. This has a lot of his whimsical, humorous imprint on it. And it's sort of down to the fact that one of the things that this book rests on is whether or not we can be convinced that Camelot never existed when we know it did. I personally think the game that he's trying to play here, the idea of, well, did Camelot exist or not, haha, is a really fascinating take on something in the Marvel Universe. There is no chance that the outcome of this miniseries is going to be that the Camelot, which so many other stories rely on to make sense, never existed. So my question becomes for you guys, where does that the validity of myth exist in this story for you? To me, I think that since it's such a central part of his character, since it's such a central part of Otherworld lore, I have a hard time believing that they can do anything to really contradict it. Um, it's been something that we've seen. We've actually seen characters in the in the Arthurian era. We've seen the Lady of the Lake. We've seen all of these characters. So, And Merlin is such a central part of Otherworld that it, to me, it would be really hard to try to erase all of it. Now, maybe you could say it never happened on earth maybe you could say a lot of those things but it'd be hard for them to actually take it all away i'm gonna piggyback on nathan real quick because that's what i was kind of thinking is like i don't think it's necessarily saying that camelot didn't exist but that it didn't exist the way i like it when people take stuff that you think you know about and then they're like you know nothing and i was like okay i'll I'll go there you think you know but you have no idea (laughs) this is the diary of camelot When legend stops being real and starts becoming reality. (laughs) A bunch of random British superheroes pick to spar in a book together. Oh my god, even worse though, because of the way Marvel has so mistreated its UK characters, this is them getting put in a Winnebago. (laughs) Guys, the UK heroes are absolutely treated like road rules. Keva, you read a ton of Otherworld and Camelot stuff. You know, all of the questioning Camelot stuff really makes me think of the sixth series of the revival of Doctor Who, where at the onset we are given a mystery of the Doctor is going to die, who's going to kill the Doctor, blah, blah, blah. But the fact of the matter is, you know from minute one, no, a character like Doctor Who is not actually going to die at the end of this season. Stephen Moffat did not get permission to kill this character. That's not what's going to happen. You know that certain things can't happen within a world so when they make these threats like everything you know is wrong it's really more waiting and seeing how they are going to spin what you already know into something new you know that it won't actually change this entire universe because it can't because there's too many other moving parts that rely on it so it's really more a matter of what they are tricking you for at the end of the day and if it's going to be worth your time like series six was not worth my time and you know that sort of the value in that trade right where does the value sit we're talking a little bit about how one of the things this miniseries has to do in order to advance the story is it's taken apart who we know Dane to be, and it's sort of reassembled him a relatable hero for a modern era, for better or for worse. But one of the things that I think that this miniseries is going to have to do is it's going to have to set this character up in a way that we can imagine him in the Marvel Universe cinematically. 
So how do you guys feel about this miniseries as a myth redefiner for an MCU era? There has to be synergy. They don't make those sort of mistakes. I don't see Kit Harrington playing this iteration of this character very well, personally. From what I've seen him in so far, if that's why they are reestablishing this character this way, I don't think that it necessarily fits in that actor's range. So I'm very curious about that. Oh yeah, I could see him totally playing like 90s Dane Whitman who's like loving on Cersei, loving on Crystal, like... Kind of rooting, rooting, but like this, like jokey, happy, like weirdly self-effacing guy. Yeah, I don't see that. That's that bums me out because like I really enjoy this version of Black Knight, and and I'm totally with you guys. Like I don't see uh, him pulling this kind of role off. I I don't. Has he ever been funny or delivered like a joke like on screen anywhere? Oh man, I was like in his entire life, has he ever made a joke? Literally dragged him through the entire mud with that one sentence. Has he ever been funny? Like, has he ever told a joke? Yes. I feel like I've seen him be funny in behind the scenes stuff. I think I've seen him be funny in interviews, but I don't know that any character I've ever seen or know of him playing has ever been funny. I'm Kit Harrington, and I'm the one who put the latte in the short. Ho ho ho. Oh no, no, no. No, I think it was Sophie. I'm Kit Harrington, and I had nothing to do with that. Please don't blame me. Oi, oi. <laughs> no, no, Nico. Yeah. What have we said? We've said don't do British impersonations, or the entire UK will consider it a hate crime. <laughs> yeah, my British accent is just like two steps to the left of Dick Van Dyke. Oh, no. Yeah, it's... it's. You it, wish. It, oh, <laughs> Oh, God, the hate crime of it. The other thing about this miniseries that I'm really excited for is understanding how the Marvel media machine works is an important step to recognizing the patterns that become pervasive in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. One of the things that the Marvel Cinematic Universe loves to do is it loves to take recently sort of remixed together characters and run with it. So that makes me wonder... Guys, did we just see the avenue to introducing Elsa Bloodstone into the Marvel Cinematic Universe? Is she about to be poised as a character in the world of Black Knight? Not necessarily poised as his love interest or a secondary character for him, but a character in his world in order to get her into the cinematic universe. And do we necessarily feel this iteration of her is going to be the strongest choice? Uh, please introduce Elsa Bloodstone to the MCU. That's all I'm saying is please sign me the fuck up for that. Yeah, 120.4% agree. Brashness, that that just big chick energy, just waving a shotgun around, drive a motorcycle through a stained glass window, like, oh. Just generally being the British Lizzo. Yes. <laughs> yes. Is she not always like this? Because in A Force, she was pretty much basically the same character towards the end of A Force. So I was like, hmm, how often is she like this then? You know, oddly enough, I think so, Nathan. My other, you know, foray with her is is with the Agents of Hate. Um, next wave. Ooh. But there she's funny. There yeah. she's not necessarily cruel. That's Here she's kind of like, you're so stupid. I don't know how I put up with you. <laughs> there she's kind of like, okay, guys, we're here to save the world not no let's make the captain look stupid now we're here to save the world she does hate on boom boom a lot though she's like yeah she's always like, she does the next an wave <laughs> well, and there's a reason for that because she's actually a like a lady she's yeah. of the bloodstone line and 
as Jojo will say, and he loves her. That is his, that's his main homegirl, but Tabby's real, 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 real white trash. <laughs> Maybe she just thinks Tabby's better than Dane. I mean, <laughs> well, listen, when you say iconic lines of don't use that math against me, you know, I grew up in a trailer park. How can I not stand somebody that self-aware? And it is a self-awareness. It's not like Tabby uses that as like, I'm dumb, you can't, I'm I'm disadvantaged. No, she's like, look, I just come from a different world. If you want to fight me, you're going to fucking lose because I come from where I come from. But if you're going to put me in a classroom, yeah, I guess I'm going to need to copy off of Amara. So like, you know, there's Ooh, like- Amara. <laughs> There is no way Amara isn't that girl in class. Having been that girl in class, you know Amara sits there smugly thinking, I've had the answer for three minutes. You're slow, you're cold, and I'm done with this. Like, the whole time. Okay, Amara is the girl in class who not only tells the substitute that they had homework due that day, <laughs> I was she's her. also the girl that would tell the substitute, actually, we were on this lesson, and I would really prefer if we didn't watch a movie. Oh, God, I was that girl. <laughs> no, no, I always wanted the movie, but, yeah. like, I was totally like, um, no, the homework was due, because I did it. So, like, <laughs> uh, but, yeah. How I, did we get married? Um, because I did your homework. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> You know, for real, in college, uh, when Keva would be like, I'm not doing homework, I'd be like, but you have to pass so you can be in the next version of the class with me. And he would be like, I didn't do the homework. And I would just like do extra homework. Yeah, kind of sometimes. Here's a fun question. We've talked a little bit about history with the character. We've talked a little bit about not having so much history with the character. But I wonder, who here knows Mordred? How well do you know Mordred? And was that reveal as fun for you guys as it was for me? I had to Google it. I I was like, like I was Fake fan. Fake fan. Wow. Fake fan. Fake fan. I don't know if you guys know this, but I only pretend to read comics. I um I somehow have started a blog where I just basically talk about the covers of issues. And I, don't, I don't know why Nico lets me on these episodes. Do you eat sandwiches while you do it? That's I do. the question. I do. Oh my god, we need to do the sandwich, and but he needs a theme song. What's your theme song, Blake? Nico, where's the theme song? Sandwiches, sandwiches, eating sandwiches on the. Ah, nope, that's it. That's all I got. No, but I love that. I can't even do it. I kind of love it. Even, I can't even write my own theme does song. Whatever a sandwich can. Put the lettuce on the side because I am a fat guy. That's right. No lettuce on this guy's sandwiches. You really sang that. Like, you really put in the heart. I'm really impressed. <laughs> it was really good. It I was, was really not expecting place. you to, like, try. So, <laughs> like, you know when you've got really low expectations and then somebody does like an actually good job and it seems even triple better than it was because you're like, I had no expectations. Yeah, that's how I live my life. <laughs> Dude, that is some brilliant performance art. Anyway, I didn't I didn't know who that guy was. <laughs> Long story Don't short. Feel bad. I did not know who that guy was either. And I was like, and they were like, oh, yeah, it's Mordred. I'm like, who the fuck is Mordred? He's Black Knight's mortal enemy. He's always trying to steal the power for himself because he's like, yo, Merlin, why don't you love me? And Merlin's like, uh, we're really not. I'm a bird. No, I, am, like I am not at all familiar with Mordred when it comes to Marvel Comics, but I am familiar with Mordred when it comes to Arthurian lore. So for that reason, I really did appreciate the line of, of course it's Mordred, it's always Mordred. Because it is. If if you're talking somebody to be going up against an Arthurian figure, it's always going to be Mordred. It's Mordred or it's Morgan. 
So, Kevo, to remind you, you've actually read a bunch of Mordred back in the pages of Black Knight when we covered it for Captain Britain. That's no memory. The, that's the guy that helped Black Knight in the Black Knight, not uh, the guy who fought Black Knight in the Black Knight origin story that was reprinted as a break during the uh, Otherworld saga. <sighs> I remember the trolls and the giant. The guy and who sent those. Jackdaw. I don't remember Mordred, but I believe you. I would love it if Mordred was responsible for Jackdaw. Oh. I hate Jackdaw. And oh. I mean, no, and like, that's that's one of those things. Jackdaw's only in like eight issues ever. And oh, for, yeah. And for the most part, Captain Britain literally says, I wish you would die. And yes. Jackdaw is like, no, I'm going to be mischievous and run away with your things and not tell you why. Like, but then when he does die, Brian has like a 20-issue breakdown. But like... Yeah. Actually, in the stories, Jackdaw sucks and he is, is kind of annoying. obnoxious, and like Brian roots for his death. He's <laughs> like the American version of Kiro from Card Captors. He's annoying. He's a surfer. It's weird. Whoa! I can't believe that happened. So uh, <laughs> I'm excited about the return of Mordred, and I think it's really interesting that it's one of those things that where I'm like, yeah, how isn't everybody so excited? And everybody's like, I mean, there's a lot of bad guys in the Marvel Universe, dude. I mean, like, I was kind of like, eh, Mordred. It's always Mordred. <laughs> you have no use for him. It's always Mordred when it's when Percy's involved. It's always Mordred. Ugh. And you know that is it was that Mordred I, all along, <laughs> and that's what I want to see them get into a little bit more. The fact that there are two Black Knights, not just in general, but in this miniseries, is significant. There is both Percy and Dane. They come with their own side characters, their own villains, and their own narrative arcs. In that regard, it's a very different set of circumstances that usually kind of pervades each other's stories. Trying to bring them together in this way is a hallmark of a lot of like the bigger Black Knight stories. You know, you bring them together to tell a big magical epic, right? I'm curious to see how they split that out in the films. If perhaps we'll be seeing some sort of Dane and Percy situation, and if Kit will be responsible for them both. What is Merlin's, like, kink with making people choose between weapons? Why is he always making people choose between a sword and, like, something it's else? It's a morality a test. Things? But it's a but, weird like, morality test hold on. weird pieces. <laughs> Once as an instance, twice as a hobby. Yeah. Can we get a, a Marvel What If issue where some fucker chooses the cup? <laughs> <laughs> yeah for once i really enjoy this idea of it's some sort of bizarre fetish like once is an instance twice is a hobby three times is an uncomfortable fetish you're putting on other people well, no 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 but he does it in like multiple realities that's what the captain that's what the captain britain core is yeah based off of. okay listen it's just the it's best described as dr duvin smirts if i had a nickel for every time that merlin told somebody to choose a weapon and they ended up choosing the sword and discarding the rest of them i'd have two nickels which isn't a lot but it is still very weird that it happened twice i agree and you know what i want all the discarded weapons hey if no one's using that can i have that magic really quick why would you throw that away yeah exactly like like a smith spent a lot of time on making those weapons then you set them down you like wanted them to sink to the bottom of hell like what if there was another hero who can use that like why was it only the one hero there could be multiple heroes that's what i love they just throw them into this river like like, yeah we don't need these they're not going to be important later no one's going to find them i'll just throw them into this river in hades like (laughs) well 
But you say a hero made them. It was just Percy, so it's not like it wasted anyone importance time. Yeah, you're oh, right. Oh, it, Percy. Oh. Hey guys, it's me, it's Percy. Um, I'm I live in a window. <laughs> Don't make it sound so close to Glob. Glob is great. Percy's not. That is true. That is also my Glob impression. I'm pretty careful about that. That's just your impression. Shush! Shush! Whose side are you on? Shush! Hey guys, it's me, Percy. I live in this window, but if you're gonna call me, you have to do it properly. And like, I'm a ghost, but I'm not a spooky ghost. I'm and uh, also, gonna threaten me with ghost bullets, which I don't really know what they are because we didn't have guns in my time. But like, no, they totally did. Guns are so old. People have in been Arturian time. Yeah. In the Marvel universe, yeah, I would buy that because other planets would have guns and shit. So like, yeah, guns have just always. Okay, existed. but did Percy have a gun? Hold on, Alexa. When was the first gun made? Not gum. When was the first gun made? 1364 for gum, really? Interesting. Wow. That's old. Hold on, it just said around the year 10, and I don't think that's the answer. <laughs> Hold on, I want to know how old guns are. record <laughs> of gun. Uh, okay, historical time development, the first modern weapon starting at 1364. Okay. Okay, gun timeline. PBS. Ooh. They have guns now? <laughs> uh, yeah. Times is rough. According to PBS, 1364 is the first recorded use of a firearm. Okay. According to Wikipedia, China says they had guns in the year 1000. So why didn't Merlin make a magic gun? I feel like that was a big lost opportunity. Like, like He made a fucking cup, but he didn't make a magic gun. He's like, we got a stick, we got a cup, we got a shield, <laughs> we got a sword. These are the best things in our world that we can magicize. And and give to somebody to save the fucking world. Don't worry, no one needs to make a bomb. They'll never make anything better than a sword. Don't worry about it. Well, wait, but if you wait, if you make a bomb though, you can only use it once, right? So like a sword, you can at least use a whole bunch of times. Oh, I absolutely love Jax. Like I want like her to like get superpowers and be the new Black Knight. It didn't get rid of Dane. No, I'm just kidding. I love Dane, but like maybe she can be like Dane. Maybe she can have the fucking cup. <gasps> yes, Ooh. give her the cup. cup give her the cup. That's her new power. Her power is Cup Princess. And uh... oh, you know, don't give her the cup. There's actually a lot of yeah. No, oh, don't no, give her don't make cup. her Yannick. No, no, give her the sword. Give him the cup. And now he's Cup Princess. Why in page seven of Digital, where like Black Knights wear like the black shirt and the blue jeans and that like sword holster like on his hip? Like, why does he look so hot there? Oh. Oh, no, the art in this book, I mean, we've had such a good time being silly, but the art in this book was spectacular. I yeah. thought that it all had a really polished, cartoony feel. There was something that felt kind of the earnestness of Michael Ryan's art, right? Not comparing this artist to another artist and saying, oh, this is derivative, because it's certainly not. This is a unique piece of exciting art that I really enjoy. But, you know, you can really see where they're trying to sort of harken back to a time this doesn't feel like everything I'm buying on the shelves right now where, you know, you've got Joshua Kassara doing these lines that get so fine and so tight or sort of the bigger than life deformity of the work by David Baldon. Here we have a tribute to the cartoony principles of Arthurian comics, maybe a little bit less Prince Valiant, He-Man, Hamburger Hair, a little bit less that, but like... Still, a very cartoony, polished kind of feel that I think supports the story in a dynamic way. 
You know he's he's done uh, he's done a few uh, Red Sonia and, and Conan back in the day too, so it kind of fits into that you know barbaric sword swinging uh, kind of. But I mean, this guy could draw anything. You know, he's he's Sergio's very absolutely, and you really can see it in the line work. I love the scene where like right at the beginning where Dane's like, "I was fucking dead. I just had my fucking head cut off," and like Jackson's like, "Don't eat my brains. Don't eat my brains. Don't eat my brains." Oh my god, like, you know, I yeah, they're zombies, and like. Look, it's sort of adorable that everybody in the X-Men is always like, oh, you're back, Gene, and no one's ever like, Gene, why are you chewing on me? <laughs> Gene. That's just normal Gene behavior at that point. Gene just yeah. is walking around Wait. gnawing on, on a roar. <laughs> just like, I love you. Just, yeah. <laughs>